Good morning. Well, it is true, Mason Brown is not Matt Lominick, and Matt Lominick is not Tom Hendricks, although we do all share the same haircut now. Uh, I've been assimilated. Uh, I, actually, the reason I have, I changed my hair and parted on the side. It used to always be parted on the side, but uh, my daughter, Delaney, who's sitting right over there, uh, we were watching the Avengers, and Captain America came on the screen, and his hair was like that, and she said, she leans over to me, and she goes, you need to do your hair like that, and your face. Got some work scheduled next week. (laughs) Couldn't leave it alone, could you, honey? All right, well, it's great to to, to be here to be able to to share the word with you today. We are continuing in our uh, year-long journey uh, in which we've called Life is Mission. We've really focused on this idea that life is mission. And we've been walking through the book of Acts. And today we get to walk into the ancient cultural and philosophical capital of the universe, Athens, Greece. We get to, we get to walk into Athens with Paul and we get to contemplate some of the most profound and complex thoughts in all of humanity and all of human history. Uh, but it's so complicated. It's, it's, life has become so complicated. Um, these guys' lives and thoughts had become so complicated, they'd gotten lost in the weeds. Two, two different groups of people that we're going to meet today. One of them were the religious, the ones who had gotten caught in the weeds of their, super, of, of their heritage, of their ritual. And the other were the thinkers, the philosophers, who had gotten caught in the weeds of, of the newest idea, the newest revelation. And they sort of believed that if it's, if it's new, it's true. And if it's old, it's not. And, and, and they were always looking for that newest idea. And, and I was just thinking about my own life against the same backdrop. And I thought, you know, it's, there's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. I, I remember life was so sp- simple for me spiritually when I was a kid. I grew up in church, and I know that wasn't true of, of all of you, but for me it was very simple. I grew up in the church, and when I was um, seven years old, I was in Mrs. Thompson's Sunday school class. And Mrs. Thompson was the consummate Sunday school teacher. She was this lovely, delicate, little, petite woman who wore beautifully... She was beautifully adorned all the time in these outfits with lace that I'm sure she made herself. And there was a perfect string of pearls that would string around her neck and her hair was perfectly coiffed and poofed. And, and um, she had perfect makeup and she was really the sweetest, nicest, most humble person and just so, so spiritually elegant in the way that she carried herself. And, and, and she would teach us the Bible every week. And I remember when I was seven years old, she brought a, one of her little fine china coffee teacups she brought in. And she took this teacup, and it was, it was beautiful. It really was. Even as a, as a small child, I could see that it was, it was very lovely, and it had this beautiful pattern on it, and it was, it was gold inlaid. And she said, she said, this is you. She said, this is the way God created you. He created you beautifully. And if he take one of you and, and put you with a whole set of you, you have this beautiful, this beautiful sort of mosaic, this tapestry, this beautiful set of fine china that God has made in his image. I'm like, oh, that's neat, that's neat. So then she takes and she turns it where we can see it, and in it... She has found filth and muck and dirt and like I think there was a bug in there. I, I don't I don't even know where she got it all. I don't know where a woman like this would even have access to dirt. But somehow she had accumulated enough dirt to make this mug look gross. I think there were coffee grounds in there, and she showed it to us and he said, But but this is you on the inside. This is your soul because of your sin. And she said, You see what that does? It 
It, it takes this beautiful thing designed for a purpose and it corrupts it. It, it, it. it makes it unusable for that purpose. It takes a beautiful thing and it, and it steals from its beauty. And so here's what Jesus did. And she pulls out this white, perfectly white linen cloth and she wipes it out and she keeps wiping it until it's completely spotless and clean. And she said, this is what Jesus did for you. And she holds up not only the clean cup, but the dirty rag. Jesus took this so that you could be this. And then somehow in her little Sunday school lady magic trick, she, she managed to, sleight of hand, change the cloth to one white as snow again. And Jesus overcame this when he was resurrected. Simple. And I got it. That day, I understood it and I assented to that truth and I became a Christian. Fast forward to college. Southern Methodist University, first day of first philosophy class, freshman year. Not making this up. It's an honors philosophy class. I was only in there because I knew the teacher's assistant and he got me in. And so I'm in this class and it's just like you'd imagine in a movie about college, okay? We're all sitting there and we're kind of in this semi-circle round thing and there's a big black chalkboard up there and, and in walks Dr. Serge Kapler and he's German and he's got a little bit of a German accent like this. And he, he comes in, literally the door flings open and he sweeps in and he's wearing Literally a tweed coat, a turtleneck with patches on the sleeves. He's got the hair that's just long enough that he's kind of philosopher hippie, you know, but peppered gray, so he still looks distinguished. And he doesn't even look at us. He just walks in and he turns around on the board and he writes, beauty. Is in the eye of the beholder. And he looks at it. And he turns around and he says, Is that true? And the debate begins. And for the next hour and 20 minutes, I and these students, we get drunk on philosophy as we talk about these, these two sort of... Uh, Battling concepts. One is that beauty is an absolute that exists outside of you, like Plato talked about in the world of the forms. That, that beauty is, is one of, of many concepts that are perfect, that exists somewhere out there, outside of you externally. And the human endeavor is to realize that these things can be discovered and pursued to some extent. And, uh, and to pursue those things outside of yourself. Or, or is it that beauty is within you because you are the divine spark. And within you, you define beauty for yourself. And beauty is in, therefore in the eye of the beholder and the beholder is me. And so there we were off to the races in the debate and it was wonderful and I loved it and it became my favorite subject and it was my favorite in college and it was my favorite in seminary. Uh, but then I began to realize it really wasn't very helpful in my human condition. Like I wasn't going anywhere as, I, as my mind and my thoughts about God and his universe got more and more complicated. There are 35 million books in the United States Library of Congress. Many of which, most of which, probably exist to discuss the complexities of God and religion and philosophy. 35 million books from, for, for about everything from God to philosophy to religion to how to grow fat tomatoes to who was the best rock band in the 70s. 
all there, if you stacked them one on top of the other, they would be over 550 miles tall. All of human thought, all of human endeavor, seeking to understand who we are and what this life means in one form or another. Well, for the past six months, we've given you this mega idea. And the mega idea is that life is mission. You hear it every week. It's written on the screen. And you know what? If we left it at that, that's not controversial. Everybody would agree with that. My, my college philosophy class would have agreed that, you know, part of life is understanding its meaning so that you can live a meaningful, purposeful life and be happy and all that sort of thing. But then we went a step further in our proposal to you and we said this. This mission is given to us by God. Maybe a little more controversial. That it is the only mission that's worth living for and that it is shared by all of us. There's only one mission in life. Here's the mission. To join God in the redemption of his creation through the power and work of Jesus. Every human being who's ever lived, that's the mission they're called to. To join God in the redemption of his creation through the power and work specifically of Jesus. And let the debate begin. Now we're into the world of controversy. Now we're into the world of complexity. Because you see, we've raised the ante. The implications on this, this idea are huge. Implication number one, there is a God. You are not him. He's not inside of you. You're not part of God that makes up the whole universe. You don't create him in your image, this mission says. This mission says there's a God and you're not him. It says that God is a person, not an energy force or a thing. It says that God created everything, including you. Now maybe... One of your barriers to this is the whole notion of evolution. Maybe you're an evolutionist and, 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 and through the theory of evolution, it makes it real hard for you to believe that there is a God who's created everything. That sounds like superstition to you. But let me just say this. If we're thinking today, what we're thinking about is truth and we're thinking openly and we're thinking with an open mind. And what we realize is that everything starts with a presupposition. I have to start somewhere with a presupposition that I believe to be true, a theory that I seek to prove. Even Darwin started that way. Darwin wasn't an atheist. He He was a theist. He went on his journey to set out to discover how this world who he believed was, which he believed was very inefficient could be created by a perfect God. And perhaps there was a way that in a closed cycle, in a closed loop, the universe or the, 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 the world was able to, to create itself in some sense. He didn't set out to disprove God or to prove God. He set out to observe. But if you begin with the presupposition that it's superstitious and crazy for a God to create, then you're no different than the religious person who begins with a presupposition that says it's superstitious to believe that everything came from nothing. I think I've told you this before, but I remember once, I'm one of those geeks that watches C-SPAN, and I'm watching C-SPAN one time, and Stephen Hawking's on there, the guy in the wheelchair, one of the most brilliant physics minds of all time. And uh, 
he's explaining string theory to a press corps, a scientific press corps. And I watched this for like an hour and 20 minutes and I'm mostly totally confused, but it's fascinating. And uh, he's explaining this thing and, and he does this brilliant presentation. And at the end of it, a reporter raises his hand and he, he asks him a question. He says, where did the strings come from? And that wasn't the best part. The best part was Hawking's response. He said, that is a question for the theologians. So if you come here today and one of your barriers is that you've always understood scientifically that science has demonstrated it's impossible for this proposition to be true, then I, I encourage you to consider that we all have presuppositions. And that it takes no more faith, it takes no less faith, maybe even some more, to believe that there is an eternal nothing that created an eternal something that created someone that is you. So start there. We start with the belief that there is a God and we are not him. And he is a person, not a force or collection of everything in the universe. That he created everything, including us, and that we belong to him. We believe that God is self-sufficient and that we are utterly dependent on him. And here's a biggie. Here's one for controversy. We believe that God revealed himself concretely as a person in time and space. So if we believe these things, then it's only natural to believe that serving him is the only thing that makes real sense of the universe and of your life. It's the only thing. And you must choose whether or not you will serve him understanding that because of the natural order of things, to serve the giver of life is life and to serve yourself is death. Now, what I've just said, modern thinkers, scientists, philosophers would, would have us to believe that these ideas have become outdated. That, that human thought has evolved over time and is radically different now than it was hundreds or even thousands of years ago. But the truth is there is nothing new under the sun. The truth is that our intellectual uh, sophistication has not gone like this in time. It's really kind of gone with a couple basic ideas like this. And one or the other has fallen in and out of favor. One being uh, 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 signs and wonders. The spiritual world. I want I, I, The way that I'm going to understand the universe is in, in the spiritual terms. These, uh, show me that there's power and I'll believe in that power. And that'll come into favor for a while. Spiritism. It's, not, it's been very recent that it was in favor in the United States. Shirley MacLaine, the new age. Rejecting... The other side of things, which is the power of reason to discover and discern all truth. And if I can't see it, and if I can't touch it, and smell it, and hear it, can't be real. Well, those things have just come in and out of favor. And that's the world that Paul walks into, because he works into the cradle of both of those kinds of thought. So with that in mind, let's go to uh, Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, who was he waiting for? He was waiting for other disciples. You remember what happened? How did he get to Athens? He was run out of his last town. 
We tend to think that Paul just marched through like the victorious conquering hero throughout his life until he was beheaded like William Wallace in Braveheart and that all the country celebrated, you know, defended and celebrated him and built a monument to him. That was not true. Paul's life was getting harder and harder and harder. He had just been run out of town for two things that he had done in Berea. One is he had demonstrated power that challenged their way of life and he had given them truth that challenged their way of life. So they rejected the power and they rejected the truth for the sake of protecting their way of life. Sound familiar? Sound eternal? Sound like the same old thing? So there he went into the city. So he's waiting in Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw this city that was full of idols. And let me tell you what that's all about. His spirit was provoked. This is a profound thing. Um, It speaks to, uh, honestly, evangelism. It speaks to the way we effectively share our faith as an aside. What it meant was that he was filled with a combination of anger and of grief and sorrow. To be angry, he had holy indignation. He had what God calls loving jealousy. Which says The Bible says God's a, lo- a jealous God, and that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. But it's not the kind of jealousy that we think of, a selfish, self-consumed jealousy. It's a jealousy for knowing what's the best for somebody and watching them not take it. The best analogy I can think of is in Harry Potter. Hermione and Ron... If you're a Harry Potter fan at all, you know that Hermione has a big crush on Ron. She doesn't just have a crush on him. She's the only one who really loves him and knows who he is. And he doesn't see it. And the tension of their relationship is that she has a holy anger because she knows what's best for him. Everybody sees it but Ron. And so that's how Paul walks into the city. With a mixture of grief and anger, a holy and loving jealousy, the way God felt when he saw Israel worshiping idols. Paul evangelized so effectively because his holy indignation gave him the courage and the passion. His wisdom and knowledge gave him the credibility and his love and compassion opened their hearts to hear. That's the roots and foundation of good evangelism as an aside. So continuing on, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace, which was a center of commerce and city life. So he went to the synagogue first, which he was prone to do, and he reasoned with the Jews there. Now, who was he talking to? He was talking to the religious zealots. He was talking to the people that were looking for power. They were looking for a sign. They were looking for proof that he and what he was preaching would meet their interpretations and expectations of their coming Messiah that they had developed over the years, over the centuries. So he was debating with them because they didn't buy that this guy, Jesus, was the Messiah because the Messiah they were looking for was going to be a knight in shining armor and he was going to be a political leader and he was going to overthrow Rome and there were a lot of other things that he was supposed to do that they, that they, didn't, they didn't see him do. But Paul reasoned with them. And then he went into the marketplace and by the way, he's just waiting around. This is such a part of his life that while he's waiting in Athens to go to his scheduled stop, he's out sharing Jesus and his resurrection. So he goes into the marketplace, but that's not like a mall, okay? That's everything. It was like the internet live. Everything was there. Right down the street was the was Wall Street, and, and there was a museum over there, and a, and a theater over there, and, and uh, everything was all right there. Culture, art, humanities, you know, taco stand, whatever. It was all right there. 
So he goes there and he just starts talking to people who are hanging out there. And he reasoned with them every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, it's interesting. Make a little note. By the way, if you take a church bulletin, if, um, there is a blank spot on one side, so you can take notes if you, if you uh, have things that you'd like to write down. But uh, as an aside, write down 1 Corinthians 1, really the whole chapter, but start at about verse 10. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that to the Jews, Jesus is a stumbling block. To the Greeks, he is foolishness. Now, he is speaking very specifically to these kinds of conversations. He's saying to the Jews, Jesus isn't who they expected him to be. And to the Greeks, he's foolishness because he doesn't fit their ideas. He doesn't fit in their construct. He doesn't fit this Epicurean idea or the Stoic idea or the newest and latest philosophies. So Paul speaks to it there. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, that might have been the Epicureans who would not have in any way believed that there could be any supernatural activity. They didn't believe in such things. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, the, 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 the Roman, the Roman, uh, Rome had lots of gods. They adopted gods from other countries all the time, but they always had to be gods that served their purposes. So if I am a farmer, I adopt gods of farming and I serve the gods of farming to earn their favor. I don't care about the god of fishing. I don't, I don't pay homage to that god. So they were happy to, to accumulate gods, but they always they had a vetting process. They had to make sure that the gods would work for them, not against them, before they adopted them. And the reason they thought he was preaching a foreign divinity is because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, resurrection from the dead. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, this is a big deal. The Areopagus was Mars Hill, okay? The Areopagus was the place of formal debate. There was a council there that regulated and, and, uh, and oversaw these debates. And Paul was given the honor of being invited there through his persuasive arguments. He was invited to a formal discussion by the most respected thinkers in the world capital of thinking. So he knew his stuff. So they invited him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there were, uh, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Coffeehouse discussions. Things that, uh, uh, in Athens, they would, the intellectual life had become a fruitless pursuit of the newest thought. Uh, I go to brew up here once a week. I have a meeting there and I stick around after and I study. And the same guys are always sitting in the same seats talking about the same things. And they're solving all the problems and figuring it all out and nothing ever changes. That's the, I hope none of you are those people. (laughs) If you are, I'm sure you're different. Uh, so anyway, but they're not, they're not anchored. These conversations aren't anchored to any central or transcendent or eternal truth. Uh, and there's no power of redemption in them, okay? So a little point here. You can talk philosophy. You can talk truth. You can, you can talk deeper things. And it can be utterly meaningless. It does not have power. Just like a thinker would tend to think that a person can superstitiously pray and superstitiously believe that this thing or that thing has power and it's meaningless and powerless, well, guess what? The same is true of empty rhetoric and philosophizing. So then Paul gets up and he addresses the Areopagus. He says, it says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, I imagine him biting his lip. 
and going, eh, get it ready to be as nice as I can be here. But he says, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. You see again, the compassion and respect. For as I passed through along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, that word observed is interesting. He could have just used a Greek word for saw. I saw all these idols, right? He didn't use that word. He used a word that means I looked beneath. I looked beneath the object of your worship. And I see a story behind the story. And I came across this unknown God. So he interacted and engaged and respected their way of thinking. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What he had observed is that he had, he observed what an idol really was. It wasn't just something made out of stone or gold. An idol was a good thing that they had declared the best thing. It was a good thing that they had declared their God. Sound familiar? Same old story. Taking a good thing and making it the best thing. But here's what he didn't do. He didn't crush them with boulders of truth. He intersected with their culture and understanding. He entered respectfully into their world. And then he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, speaking to one group, being Lord of heaven and of earth, spoke to another group, does not live in temples built by, built by, made by man. Now you might think that that made them mad, but the truth is that the father of Stoicism shared that same belief hundreds of years before. The father of Stoicism a man named Zeno of Citium, not the Zeno that did the Zeno's paradox. Zeno of Citium, uh, he was a pantheist. He believed that God is in everything and everything is God. So for him, it would be preposterous to build an idol because that, that's no more God than you are. So it was a misunderstanding of this notion, but Paul borrowed it from their culture and he reoriented it for them. He said, he's not made by man, nor is he served by human hands, unlike the Greek gods, who required service from humans. You ever think about that? You got a God, you got an idol you're worshiping, and I had to build him, I got to stand him up, I got to clean the bird poop off of his head, I got to do all these things for this idol. And he says, this God doesn't require service from humans, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made for, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Let me tell you what he was saying. These were the Greeks. These were the people that took pride in being the breadbasket of civilization and thought. At one time, they had been all powerful, but now they had to share their power with another nation, and there was a tension to it. And Rome took over, right? And Rome was going to be the permanent Nation, You know, that's what Hitler was after. He was, he was after a, a reign like unto Rome. He should have done his history. Because he would know that today, if we were to go to Rome, what we would observe would be ruins. So Paul tells them the truth. And he says, this God is not built in temples, or doesn't dwell in temples built by human hands. He says that this God... He says that this God is eternal. 
This God created all things, and this God even sets the boundaries of nations like yours. And one day, he doesn't say this, but it comes to be true, they will fall. And then he says this. So he says he has determined their boundaries, allotted periods, and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now, here's what's interesting. When God creates you and you understand that he's God and you seek him, what happens? You find him. But what happens when you exchange the God who created you for the God who is yourself? Your seeking turns to groping at nothing. And that's what they did. In a self-centered world, Seeking God became groping for him. We were made to seek him, but in searching everywhere but where he is, we grasp at air. And so then what do we do? We find our solace in lesser thoughts, lesser things, lesser pleasures, infatuation versus love, delusion versus security, numbness versus peace, oblivion versus eternity. And then Paul says this beautiful, sweet thing. He says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, he quotes from Micah for the Jews, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination and uh, uh, an imagination of man, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He says we're accountable for these thoughts. We're, We're accountable for our worldview. We're accountable for where we seek God because he created us and it is his right to hold us to that. So now we must repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And here he comes, drum roll. By a man whom he has appointed and if this, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And maybe there were moans and gasps and shrieks and laughter, and mockery. But it was the truth. It was the truth that they sought. It was the power that they craved. The punchline was that Paul was declaring that worship of the one true God through Jesus and his resurrection is the only way to live. And the pursuit of anything else becomes ruins. It becomes dust. It becomes chaos. The resurrection is everything. My teacher had it right. Back to the cup. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear about this again. So Paul went out from their midst, but but men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areagopite, a member of the council is who he, he was, and a woman named Damaris, which is interesting. Uh, she was probably, possibly, 
a wealthy man's prostitute. A courtesan of the wealthy. Because a good-mannered, proper Greek woman would have understood that she had no business among the men talking philosophy. So if she was there, it was very countercultural. But the only two people that, Paul, that, that, that are mentioned by name are a member of the council and this woman there under questionable circumstances. This was not a glorious moment in the history of evangelism as far as they understood. Many people would have considered it a failure. But here we sit today, not under the authority of Epicureanism or Stoicism or religious power or reason, but under the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. So there's nothing new under the sun. Since Adam and Eve in the garden, we've all sought ways to justify the way things ought to be. Thinkers became idolaters of the quest uh, for their quest of reason. You can be a thinker and you can idolize that in your quest for reason. You can be religious and you can make idolatry of your religious ritual, of your need for signs and wonders and power and looking for demons and angels under every rock. You know what? They're there. But they're misunderstood because they're all submitted to the power of the resurrected Jesus. We all make idols to protect our path, even if the end, in the end it leads to isolation and to chaos and to death. It's in our nature. So I want, to, uh, I want to leave a few things with you today. I want you to ask this question of yourself. What's your life premise? What are the ideas and philosophies that you base your life on? Even if you are a Christian and you, you say it's the Bible and you say it's Jesus, what do you really base your life on? What is your idol possibly? Is it flawed? Paul says if it doesn't begin or end with Jesus, it doesn't work. So let me throw out a couple flawed premises. Many roads lead to heaven. Jesus, is, Jesus says he's the only one. Again, I'm not telling you have to agree with this idea, but if you believe, if you say that you believe in Jesus, this is what he says. He says, many roads don't lead to heaven. He said, I am the only one. I am the only one who paid the price for you. I am the only one who could clean your cup. And I was here, tangible, physically. God in the flesh. Here's another one. God is here to serve my purposes. Jesus says we're here to serve his. God is who I make him to be. Jesus says he's the author of life. He's made you who you are to be. And here's another one. There is no God because I can't see him, touch him, taste him, hear him. Let me tell you the response to that. You can. You can. We don't debate the existence and person of Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or anybody else, we debate the reality and the claims of Jesus. Why? Because he was real. And on the basis of his reality, he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. In, physically, he appeared to him. He didn't give him the best book to read on philosophy or the, or the proper religious ritual. He said, here I am, Paul. Why are you persecuting me? And he changed Paul the thinker into Paul the evangelist, an evangelist of the resurrection of Jesus, not of an idea. 
He died on a cross. He was risen from the dead and seen by hundreds of people. He took doubting Thomas, the doubter, and he took his hand and he stuck it in his side. It is an insult to the people who died on the claim that Jesus rose again to say that you cannot touch God. No one has ever been touched more than God. All right, how about things that in themselves are good? Wealth. Wealth is good. Wealth is good as if it's used as a tool to bring glory to Jesus, to bring redemption to his world. Jesus calls it a burden otherwise. What about security? You know, security is never promised in this life. Jesus never promises you security in this life. He only promises you one thing, trouble. There's only one pathetic, sad, sorry place that Jesus promises security, and that's in eternity. But in this life, he says, you will have trouble. And for you, if you are on my mission, it will be dangerous. What about things, a house, possessions? There's nothing wrong with those things unless they become your idol, because they will be dust. What about your children? They're a great thing. They're a wonderful thing. But here's the deal. They're not yours. They never were yours. You think you love them the most, but you don't. Jesus loves them more than you do. And he and they need him more than they need happiness. They need him more than they need comfort. They need him more than they need Disney World or self-awareness or a great career or health or safety or security or any of those things that are all wonderful as long as they are a part of the redemption of God's creation. And your, parent, and your kids grow to understand that Jesus is what they need first, no matter what. Your spouse, your spouse is your partner in mission, not the one to make your dreams come true. Your career, your career will change five times in your adult life. Five times. The thing you thought was it will change, statistically speaking. Your vocation will never change. Your vocation is the redemption of God's creation through the power and work of Jesus. What about quality of life? You'll never have enough. What about a position? Your only boasting is in Jesus. And what about that question of beauty? Well, it is in the eye of the beholder. But the beholder is God who created it. And lastly, for the intellectuals in the room, I give you this challenge from the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Considered the wisest man who ever lived. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this, all, uh, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. To those of us who stand at the altar of reason and knowledge and thought and philosophy, I say, if you don't know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, it's not that you thought too much, it's that you haven't thought enough about the truth that is standing right in front of you. As real as the chair on which I sit, more real because it's eternal. 
All things are, that are less than Jesus and his resurrection are idols. The resurrection is everything. So what say you? Back to the cup. Let him cleanse you. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, I, I sit here and speak as though I don't have idols, as though I don't um, idolize wisdom or knowledge, as though I don't have rituals that I idolize, as though I don't idolize my wife or my children. So Lord, I, I confess all that to you and come as chief of sinners among my brothers and sisters. We all come to you together and we are so grateful knowing that our nature would never be able to understand and receive the power and resurrection of Christ. We are so grateful that it's your Holy Spirit who changed our hearts. And we lift up those to you now, Father, who need that change by the Holy Spirit to cast off their idols and receive Jesus in the power of his resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins and live for the redemption of your creation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.